So last year, um, I, I got this injection in my knee. It was a synthetic injection uh, called NeoVisc because I had this really old football injury. And so they gave me this injection. And while I, while I was in the um, doctor's office waiting to get this, uh, this injection, I noticed that there was a titanium knee model on the desk. And I picked it up and was moving it around. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I thought to myself, I could you just get two of these, save a lot of time. And when the doctor came in, I held it up. I said, hey, look at this. T- could we just skip this injection? Because I'm probably going to have to deal with, you know, your, your body's breaking down and all these kinds of things. And so I said, can we just skip and go right to the titanium knee? And he's like, oh, you're way too young for that. There's no way. You can't get the titanium. But, you know, anyways, it's just we're, we're all on this quest, I think, culturally, as you kind of look out and stand in the supermarket and read the headlines. You know, the quest for uh, to be bigger and better and faster and stronger and healthier and push death back uh, five or ten years or longer. You know, this is the zone that we're all in. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, I think, very helpful, good things about wanting to be healthy. Think about what we're eating and exercise and all these sorts of helpful things. These are all good. But if you're a person who um, struggles with uh, perpetual sickness, illness, doctors don't have any diagnosis for it. You've tried a hundred things. You listen to people like me tell stories like that, and it's just frustrating because the reason that I'm dealing with my health issue, quote unquote, is because I was stupid as a teenager, and at five foot nine, 100 and whatever pounds, I was playing football. That's of my own doing. But some of you struggle with health things that you had absolutely nothing to do with. It's a constant frustration. And uh, because we live in this culture of, of kind of bowing down and worshiping at the altar of live longer, um, it can be very frustrating. And people can, when you're, when you're dealing with something chronic and you're doing all kinds of research and you're reading and you're trying different things, and people come up to you and they'll say, oh, um, have you tried this thing? I read this one article. I read this blog. You know what you should try? You know what you should try? You know what you should try? And the, the sick person is thinking, you know what you should try? Empathy. Zip it, Skippy the health wizard. I've read every available. Now, I went on Amazon.ca and I thought to myself, if I was a person that was like, you know, how do I tackle this health challenge that I'm struggling with. You know, there's over 100,000 books on health on Amazon.ca. There's no end to this. And don't come up to me after the surface and say, Paul, we're supposed to eat our vegetables and exercise. Yes, I know that. Good. Do it. Stay in milk. You know, drink, drink milk and stay in school as well. That's good. It's fantastic. Stay in milk. My sons are making fun of me right now. I can't even believe I did that. Whatever. But the, but the point is this. Mortality is sobering. Every time I'm at a funeral, and when you are a minister and you have to officiate funerals, it is sobering. Um, and I've been to all, all kinds of funerals. I've had to officiate all kinds of funerals. Old folks who lived full lives, who loved Jesus. Young folks who, who uh, the cultural conversation is they died way, way before their time. Children. Uh, it's sobering. It's mortality is sobering. And I'm not being morbid about it. I'm just being a realist saying that as humans, this is something that it's like if we can push this into the peripheral, you know, uh, we don't want to think about it. We want to push this thing back. Today's text is from John chapter 11. And I'm going to read from verse 1 to 44 because Jesus says something that speaks directly to our deepest fear, our biggest problem, our common enemy. He speaks directly about our inevitable death, and then he says, without blinking an eye, that if we believe in him, death is not final. We've been going through these I am statements of Christ, and just before I read John 11 here, for those of you who are, are visiting, 
to know who this Christian God is, to know who is it we are worshiping on Sunday morning. Why do we stop dead in our tracks and wake our kids up and say, put your clothes on, we're going to go to church, we're going to Why do we do this? Who is this God? We want to look and see how does he describe himself. Not simply what do I think about him, not simply what does the culture seem to say about him, but what does he say about himself? And when he first introduced himself in Exodus 3, when Moses said, who should I say sent me? His answer was not, tell him Jehovah sent me. He didn't just give them a name. He gave them a series of verbs in the Hebrew. His answer was, tell him that I am who I am sent, sent me. The one who's always been, the one who is being, the one who will always be. The one that's delivered. Tell, tell that's who sent And then Jesus, in John, seven times through the gospel makes seven I am statements about himself. And every time he does it, it's like a shockwave to the religious system because he's making a beeline to that moment in Exodus 3. He's saying, I am the great I am. There's not a conflict. You know, there's problems in church history where they would say, well, Jesus seems to be like this gracious, you know, hipster running around loving the outcasts, but the God of the Old Testament seems to be this angry, judgmental, you know, lightning bolt thrower and so they can't be the same person there are all kinds of problems in church history when they kind of make it like jesus is like the good guy saving us from the angry god that's nonsense jesus in the new testament is saying we're actually one in the same and so this morning we look at how he says i am the resurrection and the life john chapter 11 now a certain man was ill lazarus of bethany and mary and the sister uh, martha were there in the village in their village And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the light of this world, of the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after these sayings, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And when Jesus came, he found Lazarus already in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? But they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. And his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. Now at the end of John's gospel, He says in chapter 20 very plainly why he wrote all these things down. He says, and I quote, that you might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you might have life in his name. And in verse 4 there that we just read, Jesus said something that warrants a second look. It warrants a pause. Because what he said was this sign, this miracle of raising Lazarus was not about Lazarus. He explicitly said that. And Ultimately, what's going on here is Jesus is constantly doing specific, intentional, miraculous signs to draw our gaze to where those signs are pointing and then marinate in the implications. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though we die, yet shall he live. Now, This thing starts out, and in verses 7 through 10, the disciples are actually afraid to go because earlier, two chapters earlier, Jesus healed a blind man, and the Pharisees' response to this is, hey, let's stone this guy. So they they don't want to go. And they're like, you know, we're afraid for our lives. So Jesus' response is, let's go in broad daylight. Why would he do that? Jesus sticks with this theme of light and dark, lightness and darkness, which continues through John. He says, no, we're going to go to Lazarus, and we're going to go in broad daylight. And uh, Jesus is provoking some insight in what he says to the disciples there, because he, he does this thing about why we stumble around in darkness. And the prevailing idea at the time about why you would stumble around in darkness, and the prevailing idea today about why the world would stumble around in darkness, is because there's darkness all around us. Right? Society's bad, culture's bad, everything's dark. Or your upbringing was dark or something is dark. And Jesus says something striking. He says that the person that's stumbling around in darkness stumbles in darkness because the light is not in them. That's not what you would expect. Jesus, we don't want to go to Lazarus. We're afraid for our lives. And then Jesus goes into this teaching on 
light, light and darkness. And he says, yeah, those that are stumbling around in the darkness, the problem is there's not a light inside them to guide them. But the prevailing idea then and now is that there's this, there might be darkness all around you, but there's this guiding light inside you. That's like, and so Jesus is like, I'm actually the light. The, the guidance, the salvation that you need is not inside you, it's outside you. And so I'm going to literally go and raise the dead to put an exclamation point on like how true that is. And I want you to marinate in the implications of this as these fragile humans where mortality and, and your health and this text that's specifically about death that makes us kind of uncomfortable. Jesus is like, I'm going to go right into your biggest problem. And I'm going to shine a beautiful light that permeates your biggest problem to give you hope in your biggest problem. And so Jesus makes this, this statement and he says that the light is essentially uh, not inside them, it's outside them, and of course he's pointing to himself that he is that light. But th- so that was unexpected, but then it gets even more unexpected. And he says in verse 15, as it goes on, he loves Mary, he loves Martha, and he loves Lazarus. They're very close to him, and if you do a little bit of historical study, you'll discover that um, that family was a bit of an oasis for Jesus. So as hostility kept rising, and like it went from like, who is this guy, to let's stone him, right, two chapters earlier, Going to, going to be with Lazarus and Mary and Martha was like a bit of an oasis for Jesus. So when he hears that Lazarus is dying, he says in verse 15 to the disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there. Is Jesus cold and heartless? He says, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake because you guys need to believe something. In fact, everybody needs to believe something. In fact, what, what, what you need to believe is, is, is so liberating that so permeates the suffering and the frustration and the trials of your life. It's so important. I'm actually glad I wasn't there. He says that. It's, an, it's unbelievable. And so then there's this interesting response from, from Thomas in particular. And we're all kind of Thomas. I'm glad, so glad for Thomas. Because Jesus is like, they're like, Jesus, we can't go. We're going to die. Yeah, we're going to go. And we're going to go in broad daylight. And Thomas goes, okay, let's go with him. So that we'll die. Does he catch that? He doesn't say, as a theological, you know, modern, ah, I'm using the word theological uh, loosely, as the modern day faith gurus would have us believe that what, what Thomas should have said was, let's go with Jesus because um, he said it and that settles it, the end. Everything Jesus says, I believe, hook, line, and sinker, you know, I don't struggle with any doubts, I just, he said it, I said, we're going to go. Notice Thomas's response, let's go with him so we can die with it. That's all of us. There's faith there. There's belief there. And then there's also simultaneously with that belief, there's a struggle to believe. Let's go with him because after all, he is Christ and where else are we going to go in life? We're going we're to follow Jesus for sure. So Jesus, I trust you, but I also don't see where you're going. I'm going to go with you, but I'm probably going to die. This is Thomas. Do you see this tension? And I'll tell you why this is so striking to me is that because all of us as Christians and our children, as we struggle with moments and seasons of doubt, moments of seasons of, I don't really know, God, what's going on in my life or where you are in my life. I don't know what to kind of do with this. I'm struggling to believe. Um, you know, I believe in who you are, but I don't know where you are. We all have those moments. Our children have those moments. We're all kind of, you know, we're all kind of like Tom's. But, you know, uh, if you have, if, if in your body, to stay with this theme of health here, which seems to be, you know, this passage goes text, life and death stuff. If you don't have any antibodies, the first thing that comes along and knocks you out. You, you have to have 
you have to have antibodies. And if you have faith with no antibodies, there's no struggle. There's no, what do I do? How do I wrestle with this? Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Like, without that struggle and that tension and working through the struggle, then the first crisis that comes along, the first argument that comes along, the first seeming apparent contradiction that comes along, it just knocks, knocks us out. And uh, so we don't want to be a, an inclusive, you know, insular Christian community. We're like, we're so afraid of any sort of challenge to faith and struggle that let's, let's make sure that we just kind of get in a holy huddle and stay in there and raise our kids in the holy huddle and live in the holy huddle and educate them in the holy huddle and make sure nobody goes outside the holy huddle because if they do, something might challenge their faith. And then when they get out there, it's all going to be over. Look at Thomas. Let's go with him. Let's follow Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus. I mean, who else are you going to follow? We're going to follow him, but we're probably going to die. That's all of us at some point. And so Jesus in his great grace, that's why you and I celebrate on Sunday mornings that God's goodness towards us is not contingent on our Thomas-like faith, but on the perfection of our Savior, the faithfulness of our, of our Savior. So it's interesting. And perhaps you're here and you say, well, ha, ah, you see, now that's why I struggle to believe Christian faith. That's why I'm a person of science, because I need to have airtight you know, belief about things before I can believe them. But I suppose what I would... Uh, encourage you, you know, what I would provoke you to consider is that science by its own definition is an observable, repeatable process. And so there are a lot of things that you have embraced and you live by that are neither observable nor repeatable. Uh, In fact, in and of themselves, they're not necessarily scientific. You can't put your soul or your memories or your thoughts uh, or your passions under a microscope, but all those things are very real. So I would think I would provoke you to consider, if you are here, and you'd say, well, yeah, I'm a person of science, and this doubt thing is why I can't believe in Jesus. I I suppose I'd I'd encourage you to consider that there's actually a great number of quote-unquote things that you have faith about, um, and that science isn't something that's exclusive to those of non-faith, but that those of us who ascribe to Jesus Christ, our faith has, uh, there's a reason, and that it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection, and that it is reasonable Um, to place our faith in God because we simply humbly admit there's a lot that we don't understand. And uh, so I'd encourage you, if you're in that journey, um, to consider those things. I think that if you look at some science, scientists who are uh, like a Francis Collins, the man who's in head of the the Genome Project, uh, brilliant scientists who have actually, through the process of science, become very, very humble because they recognize the more that I know, the more that I actually don't know about the universe. And I seem to be looking at the, these, these genomes, and it's drawing me, uh, you know, Francis Collins being an example of a person who, through that process of science, has come to a faith in this God of the Bible and in Christ, uh, simply because everything uh, you can't put under a microscope, and sometimes the things that you do put under a microscope, uh, I would argue that everything you put under a microscope keeps pointing to the kind of intentionality of the God of the Bible. So we're all Thomas. Even those of you who say, I'm a man of science, you're Thomas too. So, as we watch how this text, you know, flows and continues, Mary and Martha say the same thing. They're, Jesus, if you were only here, you wouldn't have died. And they kind of have this answer. Jesus waits two days to respond. He gets the news, and he waits two days. Think about that as moderns. Two days with no response, that's an eternity. If you send somebody a text, and you're waiting for those magical three dots to start moving, you know, and if it, you send that text, and that response isn't there, and you're like, what is happening? This relationship is probably over, or they're dead, you know, because they haven't responded to this text. That's how moderns, when we wait two days, Jesus waits two days. Uh, why would he do that? Well, 
um, one thing to, that's interesting historically is that if you look at some of the uh, homiletic commentaries on ancient texts, like the book of Leviticus, there was a belief in the ancient world, there was kind of a, there was a, a, a mystic idea in the ancient world that if a person died, um, their soul hovered around the body for three days. So Jesus, by waiting two extra days, it's now four days. So by waiting the two days, he's like, okay, there's kind of this mystic idea that it's possible that the soul hovers for three days, and, and, if, I, and if I was to uh, go within those three days and raise him from the dead, uh, the religious community that's insisting that I'm not God is going to say, well, I mean, we, we know that the soul hovers around three days, and he just resuscitated, he, he healed. You know, his heart, it's like the Superman comics. He wasn't dead, his heart just beat once a week until there was a slow resurrection. All the nerds say, amen. Okay, so like that's, that could, they, the ancient world could have said that. Jesus waits these four days, and now it's an unequivocal miracle, even by the ancient kind of skeptic kind of standard. It's interesting. That's not in the text. That's an extra biblical kind of historical thing that gives us some insight into why he would, possibly why he would do that. And so God is infinitely wise and good and loving, and I'm sure that after they, they said Lazarus is sick, he's going to die, and Jesus doesn't respond for two days, just like you and I have prayed about things, and there's no, there, there's no observable answer to that prayer, or is God even hearing me? But, you know, God is good and wise and loving, and his answers are what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew, but we don't know everything that he knows. And sometimes, even in, in this particular case, the answer was yes, but it totally looked like a no. And, it totally, and, it, and the answer was a yes, but it didn't look anything like what they thought the answer was going to be. And so there's a great rest for us in our smallness as we come to God's greatness in our prayer, that even when we come to him with prayers and, you know, that in his loving wisdom, he answers them perfectly, even if they don't remotely resemble what we asked for. He's that good and that loving and that wise. And so uh, we, we find this incredible, you know, emotional, you know, outburst. They're like, if you'd have been here, it wouldn't have died. And then Jesus says, hey, he's going to rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I believe he's going to rise again in the resurrection. And then Jesus says something else interesting because he's like, I'm not just the person that has access to those things. I'm not the, just the person who can give those things. I am those things. That's a pretty bold claim. Every other religious leader in history is like, this is the way to salvation or success or peace or tranquility or zen. Like, this is the way. And Jesus is over and over and over. I'm not just like some channel. Yeah, he will rise again, but not the way you think, Martha. I, I am the resurrection. This is how he talks about himself. It's incredible. He says, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet will he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That provoking question that he asks. And so the reason, of course, that he does this miracle is he wants everybody to look where the sign is pointing. Where is this sign pointing? Where is the raised Lazarus? What is that? What are the implications of that? Right? What was Jesus' goal? His, his goal wasn't to raise one man from death. The whole reason we have this passage was that he would raise everyone who believes in him from death. Lazarus died again. But those of us who place our faith in Christ alone, apart from our works, we, 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 we don't die twice. Death is not final. Lazarus was raised and then he lived, and then he died. So Jesus' goal wasn't a temporary, so we don't get hung up in the sign. We've got to get hung up on where the sign is pointing, the implications of that. 
all of us who have our fragile challenges of being a human on planet Earth. And so when Jesus comes to this, he's weeping. Think about that for a moment. It says, it uses words like he was troubled and he was greatly moved in his spirit. That, that very famous verse, Jesus wept. I'm going to get to that in a minute. What's going on? Why, why all of this emotion if he's, if he's just going to raise him? If we just know that he's minutes away from raising him, then what's all this, where's all this emotion coming from? First of all, when Jesus saw that everybody's weeping, I'm going to give you, because there's two different words in the Greek, so I'm going to give them to you because it's important. Because uh, we have one, usually in English, we have one word that means, like we just, I love Susan, and I love hamburgers, <laughs> and I love it when I get green lights. Are those things all really equal? I'm not sure that they are. So sometimes we lose a little in the translation. <laughs> and so um, Jesus, so Jesus is weeping, and the first word that we get is uh, the Greek word sato, which means, uh, when he's weeping, it means, this is wild, to snort. With indifference and uh, sorry, not indif- with indignation and anger. So the first time he comes and he sees everybody weeping, Jesus is so angry and indignant at death and darkness, he snorts with anger. You do this when something really strikes you, like suddenly and unexpectedly, and you go, "Oh, oh. <laughs> right." You all have a version of that, don't you? Of snorting, like a cartoon bull with a ring in its nose and the little cloud puffs coming out of the nostrils. You all have moments about certain things that make you all snort. It's a wild, I mean, it's wild phrasing. I can imagine the English translators like working through, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and Reverend Sato, Jesus snorted. <laughs> Jesus indignantly snorted. Okay, yeah, he indignantly snorted, but it was, and I mean, he was crying as well, which is also faithful too. So we're just going to say weeping. <laughs> so it's a faithful translation. I'm just giving you the, I'm giving the graphic novel version, okay? Because that's the first weeping. <clears throat> He's so angry at death. You understand? How many of you have been angry at a funeral before? You're angry, some, your loved one is sick. They, they're not recut, and you're angry about it. And what do, what do Christians do? We're angry about it, and then we get angry at God about it. Of course we do. God's used to us getting angry at him. I mean, his children have been angry at him since the beginning. He's so gracious. His patience is unfathoming. But he's angry about it. What, what we need to know is God is angry about it. He's angry about it in a way, okay? People are like, I just can't believe in a God who would let somebody die of cancer. You want to know how mad God is about cancer? He left heaven. And then he came down to earth. And he was born in a chunk of rock that had animal food in it and then he walked around and he suffered all his days as one under the law and then he allowed all the sinners to beat him and strip him and he lived he came and he did all that and he hung on a cross and he died that's how much he hates cancer he's like how do i rectify this i'm going to come and i'm going to be the solution so that all those who place their faith and their trust in me will have what this earth is never going to offer if you're young and you're healthy, you're probably not thinking much about this. You're probably not even emotionally moved by what I'm saying. Because you can, after the service is over, you're going to be dunking basketballs and jumping up and see who can touch the highest on the scoreboard over there. Because you're, young and, because you're young and you're made of rubber and magic. But when you're not young made out of rubber and magic, all of us are like, yeah, you know what? This is pretty good news. You know what I'm saying? 
And so Jesus is angry, and it's important for us to understand that, because then the text flows out of that into something else that's, that's powerful and striking. Because the next word, it says this, this, this famous verse that says, and Jesus wept. That word wept is not the same word. That, that word is edekrasanet, uh, which means to weep quiet tears. So we all know what it is to snort because we're so angry. We also know what it is to really not make any sound, to not really want to get up out of a chair, like to not want to get out of bed and just lay there and cry and be grieved. That's Jesus. So he goes from to like grief and the tears. So he gets, he's not indifferent to your pain. When Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the dead, he didn't walk in with bravado, dun, 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 like the healing evangelists on television. Hey, let's raise Lazarus. Pow, pick him up again. Pick him up, give him his miracle. Pow, pick him up one more time. Pick him up one more time. Bam! Does that offend you? I'm holding back right now. Okay, that is not what happened. That is not how it was. He's crying, these quiet tears, and he's grieving because he sees the tragedy that the fall of sin has done. He sees the downward spiral and descent into chaos and inevitable death that humanity is on. He sees that there's no version of this thing turning around apart from him. And he's weeping and he's crying even though he's minutes from raising Lazarus from the dead. So he's not indifferent to it. And he's not indifferent to your pain and your hurt and your suffering. And when you're laying in bed and you're crying, you're like, I don't want to get up today. He's not looking at you like, come on, get up and be a person of faith and be strong and be this and be the other thing and be that. And come on, you just got to get up and put your big girl, you know, panties on and get your big boy tied and put the power tie and do it. And hey, Jesus is, he's weeping at this. And he's seconds from raising him from the dead. So for those of you struggling to believe Christian faith, or you're like, I'm in a journey, I'm not sure what, this is the Christian God. Not a God of indifference. Not like the crappy song from the 90s. From a distance. Not him. Not that God. This, this God is, is, is weeping with this incredible love. He's on this roller coaster of emotion. Those of you who walked in this room this morning going through things and challenges in your life and your body and your family and your marriage and your career and your business and you're going through it I have good news for you Jesus understands the roller coaster of emotion of what it's like to be a human on planet earth to be snorting one minute and quiet and and crying quiet tears the second moment this is our God this moment of quiet grief, this vivid picture of a God who identifies with your pain, your suffering, your hurt, and your loss. And so it's important for us from a Christian worldview uh, to see this and know that death is not normal. The cultural conversation is, well, this is a natural part of life. Well, okay, but if, uh, only, if, only if you've got a Lion King philosophy... Where it's like, well, death is just a normal part of life. Yeah, it's just, you know, you live, you die, it's normal. You see, that's why when you're at a funeral, you're like, this is something's wrong. Because it's not normal. 
It's not what God created. And Jesus sees the spiral into descent. And so he, he comes and into the, the depth of that hurt and that pain and says, I am going to come and give you hope like nothing else can give you hope. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And so he comes in to this free fall of humanity into this descent towards death, and he weeps. You know, there's a familiar passage in Romans 12 that says, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And it's hard for us to be weeping uh, because our reaction is often fixing or teaching or, or you know, uh, minimizing. Somebody's going through something. I'm, I'm sick and the doctors don't have a diagnosis and nobody's what's going on and this might be my, you know, life from now on and this might be new normal and I don't know what to do with that and we come in and we want to minimize that. Well, yeah, but at least both your eyes still work, right? I mean, you have that. Some people are blind. Minimizing. Well, yeah, I mean, I know you're, I know you're sick and the doctors don't have a diagnosis, but come on. It's February and your house has heat, right? There's lots of people in the world living, I mean, come on. Minimizing. Come on, feel better. Look at this person over here. That's horrifying. You, them. Do you see the difference? Minimizing. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we, uh, we, do the, we, we, do, we do go to teaching. And, there, and there's time for teaching. But it's not, it's not when they're weeping. Weep with those who weep. In other words, they're weeping, so what should I be doing? <laughs> if they're weeping, I should be weeping. Not they're weeping, I should be teaching. Well, you know the reason why this is happening is here's the 18 choices you made that led to this thing. Well, okay, thank you for that. Uh, Rabbi, now zip it, Skippy, and cry with me. Weep with those who are weeping. We can minimize, we can teach, we can fix, right? That's, that's, my, that's my Achilles heel. Oh man, you're crying, and I'm really uncomfortable with that because I'm not a crier, so how can I get you to stop crying? Because that would be really good for me. I know a perfect verse would probably dry those tears right up. Right? And they're like, shut up, preacher. Just cry with me, please. I'm terrible at it. Jesus, help me. But I think we can see ourselves in all of this, right? So then Jesus goes, so after this all happens, man, this whole thing turns. Verse 38, he comes to a cave and a stone, a tomb with a stone in front of it. Does that remind you of anything? Does that sound familiar? Jesus is in front of a of this tome, tomb sealed with this stone. And soon he's going to be humiliated by being placed in a tomb sealed with a stone. The one who commanded the stone to be rolled away, he would have his stone rolled away. And then Jesus thanks the Father, and he does this for everyone else's benefit. And then in verse 43 it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he raised the dead. Do you see that? Does that remind you of anything? Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he raised the dead. The one who cried out with a loud voice and raised the dead. This foreshadows that he would cry out in a loud voice and give up his own life so that those of us who were destined for death, we would be raised to eternal life. Jesus cried out and raised the dead. And then Jesus was on the cross and cried out. And guess what, church? Merry Christmas, because he raised us, the dead. We're united to him. This is the glory of the gospel. This is our hope. Verse 43, Jesus cries what, of all the things he could have cried, and he didn't need to cry anything. He could have just, he could have just said, move the tomb. There, he's, he's healed. He's done that before in the past, right? Go your way, your daughter's already healed. He's healed so many different times. But look at what he does with, the, look at what he does with Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. Oh, man. You know, the whole Christian life is about coming out. 
coming out of all of our sin and all of our death and all of our grave clothes. I mean, Lazarus comes out, and, and I love how he comes out. You know, like a mummy. <laughs> you know, he's wrapped in linen, he's hopping, falling all over on his face. It's probably pretty comical. Inching along the ground like an inchworm. Holy smokes, what just happened? No, no, not, not holy smokes, sorry. That was, I, that's not in the text. That was the sinful preacher. My apologies. But anyways, Lazarus is, is th- this whole spectacle of this mummy uh, coming out. And then, and then what's the last thing Jesus says? He says, come out. I love it. All of us, we're all dead. Jesus says to us, come out. Come out of all sin and darkness and death. Come out of that craziness. Come out and, and, and live in the light and the glory of the one who raised you from the dead. He says, come out. And then the final thing he says, I love it. Unbind him. Now picture it now. Who's doing the unbinding, right? Who, who, who's, who's helping him unravel himself? The disciples. Church, all of us were dead and are now alive. And all of us have a story of Christ's body coming around, coming around us, un- unwinding us, untangling us. And now here we are as those who are in a constant state of con- constantly being unwoven. We gather, sometimes we go back into the weekend, we start wrapping ourselves back up in our grave clothes. Oh, Jesus is amazing. But then on Monday, we're bowing down and worshiping the altar at the altar of capitalism or the altar, this altar, the altar of sex or the altar. I mean, it doesn't matter. Name the altar. We just, we, our hearts wander and we start put, wrapping ourselves back up and the Lord commands us to come every seven days and go, you know what, come out and somebody unbind. And who's the one that unbinds? But Christ, the power of the spirit inside you. And as this church grows and as the Lord leads and as people come in here and they're going to be bound up in all kinds of stuff, stuff that intimidates you, makes you want to cry, stuff you've never dealt with, sin that's sin that really isn't any worse than yours, but in your mind it's uglier than yours because you prefer that everybody sin the way you sin. And you know what the word of God is for all of us as disciples? When God raises somebody from spiritual death, hey, let's go and lovingly come around these people and Let's unbind them. Let's be a part of uh, this glorious redemptive process that Christ is the one who does the saving. Christ is the one who does the raising. He does all the heavy lifting. The gospel of his grace does all the work. And we just lovingly come along and help people, you know, lovingly unravel them with hearts that are very empathetic because we know that we're still being unraveled. The glorious goodness of his gospel. Church, may you go out today with humble confidence knowing that your life is in the hands of God. May the hope of the gospel lead you increasingly into an outward-facing life of love and service and generosity, liberated by this truth. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Amen.